a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. disappointed that the name of this movie i watched a different movie and there was a lot more gay sex going on and i think that it was maybe a different movie similar title though but it was different by one letter is that not what you guys watched <laughs> rag tim <laughs> rag tim <laughs> rag timed <laughs> richard 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 making the joke that you made the last time we were together was pretty good though Yes. I will give you a hint, Mike. The letter is F. <laughs> and oh. the movie he's thinking of is called Ragfime. Okay. <laughs> All right. I get it now. I get it. I get it. All right. Ragfine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. Ragfime. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Directed by Milos Foreman. <laughs> Ragfime. No, Milos Foreskin. <laughs> that's who the movie i watched was directed by that's the weird part <laughs> yeah. and it also starred an overweight james cagney so that was the strangest part <laughs> boy what a great way okay. to kick off such a funny movie am i right or am i right <laughs> god it had a few laughs come on <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i was i laughed all the way to the bank oh my god on this episode of the Culture Cast, I'm still the host, Chris Tashu, and guess what? I'm joined by the co-hosts of Rankin on Bass. Isn't that weird? We've never all been on an episode of not Rankin on Bass or Barney Miller together. Really? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. This is the first time we've done a culture yeah, cast right. together. Yeah, you're right. We just have done Colchak tapes and yeah, then 
Barney and yeah, yeah, Barney. Yeah. Was. And, so, and, Rankin, uh, and now this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm joined by the projection booths, Mike White. Howdy, hey. And uh, and uh, Rankin on Bass's Richard Adam. <laughs> All my clothes went away. <laughs> guys richard has his camera on and he's not that's lying. true yeah. <laughs> and on this episode of the culture cast we are finishing mike white may not march with a look at 1981's adaptation of an eli doctorow book ragtime <laughs> was a time when a nation lived out its wildest fantasies. When a sexual obsession triggered the murder of the century. It was a time bursting with life, passion, and rebellion. When a man's pride held a city for ransom. was the beginning of an incredible time when the famous and the faceless made history together bad time good time rag time rated pg is it eli or just wait, e-l. E-l. It's e-l. E-l. Yeah. e-l 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 what is, e-l. Is, it, what is it is it mike white may or is it milos foreman may it's Mike yes. White May. <laughs> yeah, better answer. Yeah. Chris is going to ask me in a few minutes, why this? And I'm going to tell you that this whole month has been pretty much all movies directed by Milos Foreman that yeah. I had never seen before. But when oh. it comes to this one, like we kind of ran out because there was another film called, uh, what was it? A Walk to Remember or something like that. Right. And couldn't find English subtitles for it. He did that both as a younger man and then revisited it with his son later on like the one of the last things that he's credited as director couldn't find those subs so i said you know what chris i've been wanting to do an episode of the projection booth for a long time on ragtime so let's do it so all of the research and all that kind of stuff that i normally do for a projection booth episode i have done that for this so i'm like ragtime up to the top of my head which um oh thank god yeah, it's it's so I'm I'm excited. I'm super excited. And and spoiler alert, I fucking love this movie. And I've seen this probably two, three dozen times over my life. So this is oh. this is one of my faves. Oh, so you well, you've seen it way more than me. I saw it twice when it came out in the theaters. Yeah. Which is a little strange. I like I'm like, well, why did we end up seeing this one more than once? You know, I mean, I'm sure we saw it the week it came out because it came out on Christmas Day or the day after mm-hmm. in um, 81. So, and that was prime high school for me going to every movie, every weekend, whatever was coming out, my friends and I went and saw. So mm-hmm. that's why I saw it. Now, when I think about it, we might have seen it a second time because of Elizabeth uh, uh, McGovern. Yes. And we, we just, just to catch a glimpse of. Like, and I didn't realize that scene went on so long. I couldn't remember. I, I, I yeah. remember there was that one shot where she's like full frontal. Right. And then, and I, I forgot she's nude throughout the rest of that scene. I mean, that was like, that was like the most nudity. Oh, and that was a guy like me so, in high school yeah. could see in 1981. I was, so when we were watching this the other day, my wife and I, and uh, she was just like, oh, like could probably had a similar reaction to Chris. And uh, she's like, oh, that was real cheerful. And I was like, this is one of my favorites. And she's like, 
why is this one of your favorite movies? And I was like, well, a lot of things. Saw it a lot when I was a kid. Uh, one of the first times I saw boobs, which is a big deal to uh, a young man. And I was I was nine years old when this came out. Oh, I man. was, <laughs> there is a great <laughs> tangential uh, relationship of this movie and Bob and Doug McKenzie for me. And this is a horrible story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I went to Harmony House to buy the Bob and Doug McKenzie uh, album, like their comedy album. And somehow my mom managed to talk me out of buying that and getting the ragtime soundtrack instead. <laughs> so these are not I, equivalent things. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But I love piano music. I was a piano player when I was younger and stuff. And somehow she talked me into this. And so I have listened to the songs on the soundtrack probably like thousands of times because I usually just, you know, it's one of those soundtracks you put on and it goes all the way through and you flip it over and you listen to it and then you listen to it again. So yeah, like I'm super familiar with the music, super familiar with this movie. I used to watch it when I was on cable and I would buy, I would rent the VHS tapes, the two tape set and stuff. And yeah, I just, um, something about this movie. And I guess too, that it was really one of the first times that I realized how dark our history is of in the United States, because when you're nine, 10, 11 years old, everything is, you know, apple pie and cutting down cherry trees and freeing the slaves. You don't think about this, you know, violent time in United States history. One of many violent times, you know, guns going off. We've got assassinations. We've got bombings. We've got all this stuff. It was very mature for me as a young man. And I don't know. I'm very curious to hear Chris's take on this because this is, I think, a first time viewing for you as opposed to me having seen it so many times and Richard seeing it at least twice in the theater and then maybe afterwards. I don't know. I came to it this time just with the vague memory of the only things I remembered about it were Elizabeth McGovern was naked. Um, uh, I liked it. I'm like, oh, yes, my memory is I liked that movie, but I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And the end feels like it was this very intense like standoff, but I can't really remember what the nature of that standoff was, but it was some weird crime thing. And James Cagney was a part of it. And I don't really remember, but it was something like that. And that's all I remembered. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, the, you know, it's food I remember liking before. So I'll mm -hmm. eat that food again. And I had the exact same reaction. Like, I literally think I had the exact same reaction to it this time, which was, wow, that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, what were your thoughts coming to this as a brand new viewer? I just want to comment on how the last 10 minutes of this show just existing without me have been. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're a guest on your guest on your own show. I appreciate that more than you guys know. This just is the first time in Mike White May that I've just really been like balls out because like the last few films that we've watched have just been like, I haven't ever seen this film and I'm kind of glad I didn't. But <laughs> this one, I'm like, no, this is this is. This is where I stand for. I I plant the staff. You shall not pound. <laughs> so. Well, and that's funny to me because again, like for me, guys are going to laugh. Like this movie, it was fine. I don't know. Like 
this is the right person to tell this story. Okay. That's a conceit that I can get behind. Milos Forman is a perfect person to make this kind of story. I guess I just wasn't as compelled by this movie as I was hoping I would be. And I don't know why that is. I, you know, I appreciate that there were, you know, the real people in here. Like you mentioned, Cagney playing Rhinelander, Waldo, real person. There's plenty of real people. I mean, Elizabeth McGovern playing a real person. Like there are people playing real people in this movie. And I like that aspect of this movie where it's the fictional and the non-fictional kind of intertwining. I guess for me, maybe the time and the place is just not... It's not that it's not compelling. I just think for me, it's not something that resonates personally. I could totally understand seeing it at the right age and this being like, fuck yeah, I got to see boobies and Bush in the same movie. Like, it's right. And again, like, not only is it TNA, but it's like, Elizabeth McGovern is a is a beautiful woman then now forever. So like, again, like it's it's not like you're seeing I mean, again, it could be anybody for the most part. But again, you have a woman who looks like that naked in your movie for extended periods of time. I can understand why it would like, oh, I remember this movie. And I and like, again, I think the movie stands up in spite of the fact that there's all sorts of kind of really interesting transgressive stuff that we can talk about, especially for a Milos Foreman movie, at least. Again, perception of a Milos Forman movie, I think. But I enjoyed it. I just think the ending is very rushed for a movie that's two and a half hours. The ending, the end, like where the story ends up going, it seems like they kind of sunk a lot of time into one of the three stories they could put a lot of time into. And one of the other stories kind of, kind of gets forgotten, which yeah. is the Mandy Patankin stuff, which... Yeah. I wanted more of that. And I know having done the research that in the book, that's a huge part of the book. I mean, that's, that's as mm. big of a, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like it's as big of a part of the story as maybe well, the Evelyn Nesbitt stuff is in the movie. If if you just go by what the movie gives you, you feel like there's, because at the beginning, there's a lot more of, of, um, is it, I'm sorry, Evelyn Nesbitt or yeah, Evelyn Nesbitt? Yeah. That's yeah. Evelyn. Okay. So th there's a lot of her. So, so I thought, oh, okay. So this will carry, this will carry through. It largely gets dropped. Mm -hmm. right. And it, and at the same time, it feels like the Mandy Patinkin character who is um, sort of in the Jewish ghetto and he's an illustrator who then transitions in his life to a um, early film, silent film director. Mm -hmm. That that character feels like it's, it's given short shrift. I, uh, I, it is. I, I agree with Chris. At the end, I feel like this is a two and a half hour movie, and I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, and, they are. You know? Well, it's interesting because they had to add more stuff at the beginning because when the book begins, I believe that uh, the um, why am I blanking? Stanford White is either just just has been shot or has been shot for a little while. So, like, it's more the trial and things like that. And we kind of start already like in C2, we, we, we are already there and we, so they have to set that stuff up. We have to meet yeah. um, the, the, uh, the Thal character. We have to get a little bit more of that stuff, but to your point that takes so much weight at the beginning that once, and it's smart that they introduced Cole Hulse Walker right at the beginning with him kind of playing the piano for the newsreel footage, setting up the world. And then we get more of him 
coming to the house and meeting mother and father and younger brother and Sarah and all these. So they do a pretty smart job with that. But yeah, Mandy Patinkin, his character, like there's a lot more like when Evelyn meets Tate, there's a ton more stuff. She basically falls in love with his daughter and goes and meets him and eventually finds his place and goes there and like has this whole relationship. And then she gets called out by Emma Goldman, who is another real person from history, this anarchist. They're at a meeting together because he's this big time socialist. She calls out, Hey, look, Evelyn Nesbitt's here. And she did this and she did that. And the Mandy Patinkin character is just like, Oh, I'm surrounded by whores. And he just leaves picks up his daughter and leaves leaves town, goes up to Boston, gets in this big fight and the strike and all this kind of stuff. He comes back, but then he disappears from the story until the family goes to Atlantic City. And then Dr. Rowe doesn't even tell us for like the first chapter that he's back. He just starts referring to this guy as, oh, and they met this filmmaker, the Baron, and he's doing this and he's doing that. And he's got this really cute little girl with him, blah, 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 blah. And then the chapter after that, he's like, you know, oh, Tate was working on his film script and blah, 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 and how he reinvented himself. But at least we do get that connection between Tate and mother, because when they take off together at the end of the movie, it's like, what the fuck just happened? Why why are they going off together? And right. Evelyn is well, not there. Evelyn so, is not okay. there at the end on the film set. She is she is fucked off from the movie or from the book completely. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm concerned that a listener to this podcast who yes. has not seen the movie, which, <laughs> I know, yeah, 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 which might be weird, w- will be confused because we're talking about uh, the movie, but then we're also talking about the the book mm-hmm. that it was adapted from. The book uh, Ragtime, written by E. L. Doctorow and published in 1975, was was characterized by I think more than a dozen stories of that were that that intersected and the the charm of it was the was the sort of coincidental and unexpected mm-hmm. uh, meetings and partings and and watching these characters sort of kareem and karoom off each other like like uh, pinballs and right. and and it allows E.L. Dockerow to tell a, you know sort of a, a large palette story of various classes of people and races of people and 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 embrace everything that was sort of part of the that optimism and struggle of the early years of the century. I think the book starts at around 1906 and probably goes up to the beginning of World War 1, is that about yep. right? Yeah. Okay. So so then so the movie gets made and and it it constricts down to maybe two or three stories. The the biggest one being uh, the Colehouse Walker story, which uh, Colehouse Walker is played by um, Howard Rollins Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an African American man, and and we're, we sort of follow his his story primarily, and we'll talk about that in a second. But but we're but it, but it is strange because because toward the end we're told Elizabeth McGovern's character meets Tate, the mm-hmm. the the Jewish uh, street illustrator early on, and we're led to believe a connection is there because she's also leaving a character. And by the way, I don't love the fact that main characters in this drama are referred to as father, mother, and younger brother. brother yeah. I, that I don't quite get. I'm sure that's something from the book, but okay. It is. Yeah. Younger brother um, sort of had this crush on uh, on 
Evelyn Nesbitt and yeah. and 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 sort of tracks her down and they begin a, at least a sexual relationship mm-hmm. which leads to the nudity we've been talking about like a bunch of prepubescent freaks yeah yeah and and then you expect that you're going to see those two characters in some way you don't even really understand it's like well i guess they break up and then the next thing you see is um is evelyn with this director which is the street artist who has transformed himself, but they're not romantically involved, but it's sort of hard to parse because in movie language, you think if two characters break up and she's now with this other guy and she's an actress and he's a director, then they're together romantically and sexually. And there's really no other way to see it, but I guess not. I feel like that story alone could have used another 15 minutes just to fill in a few blanks and further drama. Because I got to tell you, you know, nudity aside, Elizabeth McGovern is great in this movie. I didn't, I forgot how like funny she was. Her character is legitimately funny and she does a great job with it. When you wonder how smart is she? How shrewd is she? Is she putting on an act of being dumb? Sometimes I think she is. Sometimes I think she's not, you know, there's, there's some moments in here and there's one just, I won't say that it's a great scene, but it's an interesting scene when Emma Goldman was in the movie and that scene really kind of, it talks a lot more. Every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at us border patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Or about Evelyn and through, like, through having her contrasted with Emma Goldman, who is this real life anarchist. She actually got deported from the U S I believe right around world war one. Cause they tried to get rid of all the riffraff. We don't need any provocateurs. I mean, don't forget guys, this, when it starts, you know, you mentioned 1906, we have had uh, assassination attempts on uh, Teddy Roosevelt. We just had the assassination of William McKinley. This is the time of anarchists, socialists, communists, all of these things going on. We're, we're right before the big revolution in Russia. We've got a revolution happening in Mexico that eventually younger brother uh, joins up with, but we don't ever see that um, except for like one cut scene of him and Zapata basically being murdered by a firing squad, which was crazy. Um, But yeah, we've got Emma Goldman talking to Elizabeth McGovern, talking to Evelyn about just like, Hey, Oh, you are this figure now and you got to use this power and you got to, you know, you've got this, this platform you can be on and, you know, we can work together and all this kind of stuff. And there's almost this lesbian thing that's happening, but not quite. And there's more nudity. This isn't in the movie. This was shot. This whole thing was shot 
and that's in the now there's a work print version of it which you can get on the dvd or the blu-ray and it's part of the uh cut scenes that are on the dvd as well but yeah well, it was really kind of cool to tie all this stuff together but it just is gone but the hilarious part though is from the the book in the book the exact same thing happens as far as this meeting of the two women and younger brother is there and he's there in the movie but in the book younger brother is there and at one point they discover him and the way they describe it is just like he bursts out of the closet he's been jacking off and he's just spraying semen everywhere and i'm like what the fuck was that <laughs> Wow. Well, and, well off, and then they still end up getting together. <laughs> what what I like about what you're saying is that it's what you're describing is a sort of a story of radicalization of Oh yeah. Um, oh, definitely. Younger brother gets Evelyn radicalized. So, Evelyn Nesbitt almost gets radicalized, but that's the thing you're like is she dumb? Is she not? Because she's talking about stuff and you're just like she's like, "Oh yeah, my dance instructor said that." And I'm like, "Yeah. Are you just it, not picking up on what she's really saying?" In in the movie that that we see, the existing, if you go and and rent it from Apple, mm-hmm. um, it's it, it, she's a young woman who who seems fairly naive. Oh yeah, but but almost not naive about her situation. When she's given the opportunity, it's like, look, either you know you know d- go through with this divorce and take twenty five thousand dollars. We're, you're never going to get the million you were promised. Right. There's this moment and, and, and younger brother is like, no, 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 where I'm going to get my lawyers involved. And she's like, does anybody have a pen? Right. I am right. never going to get any more than this. So, it, so suddenly she's very pragmatic <laughs> sitting there nude in a room with three men and, and deciding, <laughs> and I know where those options three are. men, I love but, who those three men are. The Brad Dorif, of course, his younger brother, Richard Griffiths, doing an American accent in here. Cause this was all shot in England. And I, I finally am figuring out that Billy J Mitchell, who for me famously was Nick Rivers manager from top secret. He must've been an expat as well because they were hiring anybody who was American or formerly American because they shot this all in England. So it's just like, yeah, well, yeah. Give us all of these, you know, in, uh, American sounding people here while we're in England. I love that. Yeah. Well, well, you know, so so she so so the character, even even given that we don't get a lot of her interior life, um, I could totally see that that is a character whose journey we could follow as a woman at that time, and what are her options, and what is her perceived power, and how does her radicalization harmonize with what we do get, which is the extremely emotional radicalization of Colehouse Walker. And now Colehouse Walker is an interesting story when it comes to, you know, we're talking like Evelyn Nesbitt, real person, Stanford White, real person, Thaw, real person. We've got, you know, the vice president shows up in here. Booker T. Washington shows up in here. Ryan, Ryan Lander, whatever, the James Cagney character, um, Ryan Lander Waldo, such a great name, shows up in here. All real people. Now, when it comes to Colehouse Walker Jr., not a real person. And in fact, his character, his whole story was based on a novella from 1806, I believe, by Henrik or Heinrich von Kleist, or Kleist, K-L-E-I-S-T, which was called Michael... Cole house. It was K was it K double O 
H-A-A-S or something. And it was this whole story of this guy who's in, God, I want to say it's like Bavaria or something. And he's going through, like going from one city to another and he gets stopped and they're just like, Hey, you need to pay this toll. You can't sell your horses uh, around here unless you have a permit. So first pay the toll and then go get a permit. Okay. Why, where do I get a permit? I've never heard about this before. All right. You know, like, they won't just let him go. He has to leave two of his horses behind. He goes off. He talks with the authorities. So like, there's no such thing as a permit. You know, this guy's full of shit. He comes back. His horses look awful. They've been used for working in the fields rather than being these beautiful riding horses that they are. And what do you know? There's like uh, his, um, the guy who he also leaves, who's supposed to take care of the horses. He gets beaten up and he gets, um, basically punched right in the chest he's having all these problems he doesn't die like sarah dies debbie allen dies but this is that story and there's this very kind of shady thing does dr o admit it yeah eventually but is it kind of one of these like quentin tarantino apologies kinda so it's like hey this major thing that becomes really the focal point of this entire thing is not necessarily made up whole cloth, but is taken from another person's work from a hundred years prior or almost like 200 years prior. So it's very odd that we've got real, 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 and then stolen. It is, it, it, it's strange, but, but it, it works. Mm-hmm. I will say oh, that. Yeah. And I, and I don't know if, you know, look, look, when you go back far enough and you don't have to go back that far. No, nothing is owned. Everything is in the public domain. The idea of copyright didn't really even gain purchase until the early parts of the last century. So, so he may have felt it was akin to taking uh, the story of Robin Hood and right, adapting it right. to a modern uh, context. In in any case, you have Howard Rollins Jr. playing the role of uh, Cole House Walker, and he's a piano player. He's clearly very educated, very articulate. Um, I mean, mean, charisma bouncing off the walls. And the the story of Howard E. Rollins Jr. is one of the biggest tragedies ever in Hollywood for me. It really is, because there's no way to watch this movie and not feel like you are watching the next big superstar of the next 40 years. Oh, yeah. Totally. But but we meet his character because um, he sort of comes into our actual narrative because the at the home of mother, father, and younger brother, and by the way, their home is a very nice home. We'd call it a mansion now. They're yes. clearly well off. But a um, but a, but a, a an African American baby has sort of been abandoned in their yard. They eventually do find the mother and take her in along with the baby, and and they they sort of are housing them and taking care of them until until whatever other circumstance can be found for them. Well, that's when Cole House Walker shows up and and informs us that he indeed is the father. Now, it's a little bit strange that he's abandoned them. Mm-hmm. His story is that I was in I was in no shape to raise a family. I I could barely support myself, so we didn't stay together. But now I've got a great gig. I'm in a band. I'm in, in an orchestra in a ragtime thing. I'm performing. I'm clearly a skilled musician. And and now I want to come back and do the right thing. So it's like, oh, okay, great. Um, now, w- what happens is like what uh, Mike was describing in the in the German novel. This sort of it's not even a comedy of errors. It's almost more like a Kafka esque tragedy oh, yeah. as it unfolds. But it 
It has its roots, of course, in um, racial prejudice. There's a group of white volunteer firemen who see this well-dressed black man driving a beautiful brand new Model T, and that just ain't going to work for them. So they start fucking with him. And ultimately, he goes off on foot to get a cop. And by the time he comes back, one of them has defecated on the beautiful buttery leather seats of this car. I want to say it's horse shit. That's what I thought. But then later I read that maybe I'm, I was reading something that was referring to the book. I, all, I also thought, oh, they took the horse shit and put it in there. But yeah. I think maybe in the novel, one of the guys did it. In any case, his car has been defaced. Right. And- and it sets something off in him, as you can imagine, which is this is not okay because the police officer ultimately goes, look, here's the way this is going to end. They're going to go free. Just you clean up your car and go on your way and let's just forget this ever happened. But he can't. And that leads to everything that happens, which ultimately, literally ultimately leads to him and a group of, of African-American outlaws, including Samuel L. Jackson. And Frankie Faison. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, wait, 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 who are these people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you didn't even mention the cop is played by Jeff Daniels. He looks well, like a baby these, in this. All these famous people turn up in these like really kind of small supporting roles. Yeah. And in some of the larger roles are actors you don't really recognize. Like the guy who plays father. I don't recall him oh, before or after. This movie. Oh, you only know just James bodies, Olsen. baby. Only Who bodies were left for him after yeah. Commando Matrix got done with all the guys. Come on. Oh, he's yeah. the guy who enlists uh, Schwarzenegger in Commando. Yeah, Major Franklin Kirby. Yeah. Plus, wait, in um, Commando or in Predator? In Commando, no, in Commando. he's the one. In he's Commando. the one who shows up and he's like, "Hey, you know, okay. I need your, I need your help." Yeah, that's the only thing I know him from. Oh no, like, no, Chris, you know him as well. He was the horn player that was. They were trying to pin the murder of mm, that pianist in. Uh, that was John Cassavetes yeah. trying to do him dirty. Yeah, that's right in Columbo. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but he's no Samuel wait. L. Jackson. Oh yeah. That was that one. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like he's not, he's not someone I feel like for me, th- this, you know what this movie felt like for me, this movie is a more success and it's going to make complete sense when I say it out loud. Okay. This is like I a more so. successful version of bonfire of the vanities. That's the story. Isn't it the same kind of thing? Yes. Isn't it this like racial, social, all of it together. I mean, it's, I mean, look, Norman Mailer is in this movie, mm-hmm. right? Like Norman Mailer, Tom Wolf, Hunter S. Thompson, all new journalism people. Tom Wolf writes Bonfire of the Vanities. The movie is awful, but yes. the book, the book, obviously not. It's, I've, I've been reading, I've been reading it slowly. It's a lot yeah. to get through, but like, that's what Ragtime strikes me as. It's again, it's like, it's trying to be a lot Right. And like, Why and, canvas. And, yeah. Right. And like, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, like watching it twice, I think the second time I watched it, I, I appreciated that, that aspect of it more. I think for me, these kinds of stories, they, they, this one in, in not in particular, but it, it succumbs to it towards the end. It feels a little long in the tooth and then ultimately doesn't have a purpose. Like the movie doesn't the story of the book and the book clearly does, but like, all of the good setup that they do for some of the stuff ends up feeling ultimately for not like the story that I'm interested in is not necessarily the one that they're showing and showcasing in the movie. Well, well, it did. It, 
based on what it was at the beginning, I think I expected more intertwining through the end. And I've got no real problem with them focusing on mm-hmm. the Cole House Walker story. It's certainly the one with the most cinematic potential. Yeah. There's there's crimes, there's explosions, there's guns, there's a standoff with cops and intrigue. I mean, it's fascinating. It's it, it's great. And there's some nice twists and surprises in that storyline. Um, what I wish is that there had been a way to, and I don't need a lot, I don't need another half hour or even another 20 minutes, but if we could have pulled Elizabeth McGovern and Mandy Patinkin in into that sort of geography and just sort of, just sort of let us know that, oh, while all this is happening, their lives are happening too, in a way that we understand. Instead, we sort of get this, it, it feels like another story is starting when we go to Atlantic City and we're on the beach and 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 suddenly Manny Patinkin's a, a movie director and, and it feels like, oh, we're going to get a lot of this. And then we don't. And I just need a right. little more so that I know that it continues the conceit of events that are just ricocheting off the people that we know and drawing right. them in in unexpected ways. I would have appreciated that more. And you could have had the James Olsen character talking to the wife to then talk to the Mandy Patinkin character to say, there's this thing going on. Can you help us? And that just brings right. him in. And like a, a guy with a camera who is a you know Eastern European immigrant has a lot in common with, again, marginalized people in this country. And like that could have been an immediate connection that would have, I think, enhanced the finale of the movie, which it just it, the finale of the movie feels a little one note and it's not supposed to like that moment of him coming out after he's had this like you know after he's had this massive emotional outburst the Cole Walker the Cole House Walker character and then like he just walks out and gets shot right mm-hmm. again we understand how important that moment is how devastating that moment is but it needed to feel more devastating for more people than just the one James Olsen character and that's right. ultimately the way it feels it doesn't feel like it's a big deal and maybe maybe that's Milos Forman's point is the the yeah. banality of it all and like that's perfectly no. fine I mean, no, that's, I, it could be because he's Czechoslovakian. That's very like in keeping with the kinds of things he talks about in yeah. his other things. It's just like, ultimately, there is nothing you can do about it. Like that sucks. But like the, the, this is very the the movie, the movie itself, in other words, including performance and direction and production design, oh, which God, is yeah. just mouthwatering and music by Randy Newman, which is heartbreaking. It is not perfect. And it is not perfect. Because it is not a perfect screenplay. Mm-hmm. Because it is at that level that those strands are lost, and that and that we are then presented with things that feel like leftover bits and pieces of narrative from the novel that just weren't earned. When Mary Steenburgen, mother, leaves, it, it is bordering yeah. on incomprehensible, not yeah. through character motivation, but we simply haven't been giving given the narrative building blocks to even literally understand what it is we're seeing happening. They're driving away in a car. Father is watching. And we're like, well, are they just going out for the afternoon or is she leaving? I don't, I literally don't know what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. I can't believe so much of this movie happens off screen. That's yeah. what it feels like. Like it's shocking. well, well it's right. And then you're wondering, the well, did, and it's you know, of the is book. it, you know, is, are these cut scenes though? 
or or and I don't think they are. I think the no, cutscenes are with fucking no. Emma Goldstein or uh, Emma Goldman rather. I'm sorry, right? Um, which is fine, and that would have been a cool story too. But mm-hmm. but it feels like they didn't even shoot the material to make this stuff work, which is really odd to me. Michael Weller did as best of a job as he could, but I think yeah, I will agree with you completely that there are some things that don't connect. But there are some things that don't connect in the book, but there are also things that could be remedied here in the movie that they didn't remedy. So father, that's what I like. Father goes off. Uh, he is uh, killed on Lusitania of all places. Uh, <laughs> and then it's okay for mother to go off with Tata type of thing, but there's much more strain on their marriage that you do get to see like mother Mary Steenbridge. And she's a, fucking fantastic actress and you barely get to see her act in the movie so all of the pressure Mm. of father and he you know like at one point she's the only one that's raising this child and she's just like hey how about you open up them coffers and get me some help around here because this is freaking crazy she's starting to lose her shit she's too old to be raising this child on her own and you know, there's that. There's Cole House is in in the news. He's doing all these terrorist acts, and so she's just like, well, they're going to come away around and take this baby away from me. I can't have that. You know, we need some stability. My younger brother hasn't been here for weeks. I don't know what the hell's going on with this guy. She's starting to lose her shit, and the friction between her and father is really palatable. But we don't get that. So yeah, her running off with Tata at the end and just leaving James Olsen looking out the window at her, you know, kind of doing that uh, Russell Crowe meme from Les Miserables. It just, it's unearned. And yeah, it's, it's very odd to me. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it does peter out at the end and it shouldn't. I think the music definitely covers over a lot of that and just the use of the montage and that we go quickly into more newsreel footage, but it doesn't save yeah. it. You, you get the feeling, um, uh, that, uh, that, you know, it's two and a half hour movie. The stuff with, uh, Cole house Walker is great. Mm-hmm. Lucky land casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky, lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jimmy Cagney is great. It's like, you don't really want to lose. There was nothing in there I wanted right. to lose. But it's a hard argument to make that you're gonna. It's like okay, we're gonna add. We're gonna make it from two and a half hours to two hours and forty five minutes, especially in 1981 when that was not the norm. So I, I I can sort of understand that. Um, 
I would have really appreciated seeing the deterioration of that marriage because I yeah. I didn't think there was a problem there. Well, and even the work print of it, which is 19 minutes longer, you probably spend in maybe 10 minutes on that Emma Goldman stuff. And then the nine other minutes, you get little pieces here and there. So it's not like, oh, wow, you know, this whole other thing. Like there's a couple like little scenes where you're like, Maybe they should have kept that. Maybe they should have kept that. There's like just little pieces, but it's not like you're missing, you know, a major. And I would say Emma Goldman, she wears out her welcome very quickly. So (laughs) don't sweat it. You know, you're, you're not missing a lot with that character. So it's really okay. If anything, it's kind of a more of a tie between her and Tate and then little brother and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, there's not, there's just not a ton of stuff. There's one nice little moment when you see Cole House driving down that street and Kenneth McMillan as the fire chief comes out and he's just like, huh, would you look at that? And you're like, okay, so this is going to come back, you know? So you, you get some of these like little pieces, but it's not like Ark of the Covenant type of stuff that you're missing from here. And by the way, Ken McMillan fucking amazing as Willie Conklin. And especially when they're go when they go to that old guy's house and they're like, you're coming with us, Conklin. He's like, I'm not Conklin. I'm not Conklin. He's right there. And he like sticks his head up over the bed. Fucking kills me every single time. <laughs> And they well, Keystone <laughs> cop at the moment too, because then they jump oh. in and one of them jumps on the bed and the bed just goes, the board breaks. <laughs> it is so Keystone. Every time those cops show up with those stupid hats, I was just like, this is total Keystone cops. Kenneth McMillan has the ability to play the the kooky, lovable racist. <laughs> and I love that we're that we get <laughs> Kevin McMillan and Brad Dorff squaring off just a few years later in another Dino De Laurentiis production of one of my favorite movies in the entire world, David Lynch's Dune. So that whole thing of, I told the, the, uh, the, the Duke, my plan, my plan, the plan. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. This is like a mini early Dune reunion. Yeah. Kenneth McMillan. And this is, Oh my God. Oh, such a, such a great piece of shit. Just, Oh, he's Perfect. awful. Yeah. He's terrible. And I love when James Cagney's just like, you're slime, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'll tell you guys something funny. I forgot that Cagney was in this movie. Oh, like, yeah. I was like, who is that? Oh, right. Oh, James Cagney they, is in this movie. Like, yeah. Back in 1981, they made such a big deal that this was the return of James Cagney. You could not escape. The news stories were all about, and that was so funny to me. Like, obviously, now you look at this movie and you're just like, holy shit, Elizabeth Montgomery, and, uh, James Olsen, Manny Patinkin, like all these, you know, Jeff stars. Daniels. Right. Jeff Daniels. Jeff Robert Joy, uh, who I. I love that guy. He's always like small time kind of stuff, but he's, he's great. He's great as a, I think he's really kind of psychotic and desperately seeking Susan. If memory serves, he's, he's wonderful, but it's like, yeah. you know, well, but James well, Cagney bringing back James Cagney was the thing for this movie. And that was the thing that Dino De Laurentiis was just like, I have to have a star. I have to have a star. And at first it was going to be instead of Robert Joy, it was going to be Jack Nicholson playing that role, which would have just been kind of crazy. No, no, no. It was going to be, it was going to be Nicholson playing a uh, father. Really? Nicholson was going to play father. That was my I understanding. I couldn't see him as father. I could see him as Thaw because Thaw's role is a lot smaller. Thaw, he was, is, but that, was almost but, but Robert Joy is great as Thaw. And, oh, yeah. and 
and that role is unhinged. Oh, yeah. Um, What's what's interesting is that Cagney was out of movies for like 25 years, um, and and in that time he only did one or two projects. One of which was doing uh, voice work in a little thing called the Ballad of Smokey the Bear. Right. <laughs> and the yes, production. That's right. That's right. Oh boy. <laughs> so we're on a streak, you guys. Tell Why don't we just story. do a James Cagney uh, podcast? The, the Cagney cast. Cagney cast. <laughs> we're that halfway would take through. Us years to do. Oh my yeah. god! Ooh. Like decades. Good lord. Yeah. Oh, we'll just watch all the movies that he did. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a oh, lot. Oh boy. Guys. Yes. <laughs> yeah. His last movie before this was what one, two, three, but with one, Billy two, three. Wilder. Yeah. 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 Great movie. Great movie. Oh yeah. It's like what a you know go out on a high high point, huh? And then come back and just like totally own this movie whenever he shows up. I I think that he does a great job. Yeah, it's a little uh you know, like he's old, he got fat, he's got that great mustache though. That kind of evens it out. <laughs> It's just, yeah. I just, I forgot that he was in the movie and I didn't recognize him. And then I was like, oh, oh yeah. right. Cagney is in this movie and he's the, he's the the police chief. And I was like, or commission. I was like, holy shit. It's, well, there's when so I many, noticed it was him, like. There's like a yeah. lot of roundheaded guys with those handlebar mustaches in this movie. They, they begin to all look alike. And then right. you're like, wait a second, that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's not as good as Fran Drescher though screaming in the oh middle my of the God. street. <laughs> Fran yeah. Drescher screaming in the middle of the street is, oh. is also pretty great. <laughs> in mostly Yiddish, and like I was really glad I had the subtitles on because I was like, oh wait, no, she's speaking English here, but she's just so hysterical that you can't understand, and then she'll f- switch back to Yiddish again. She's amazing in this, though. I really, it, I, I mean, she's still a beautiful woman, but she was just a knockout um, when she was in this. The, the, that whole sequence was so great. And so um, when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, right. You know, Milos Forman was a documentarian. And there's yeah. something about sort of the distance from which we are watching this, this sort of uh, play unveil itself before our eyes. We don't understand the language, but we have no misunderstanding as to exactly what is going on. Right. When he puts us in that Elizabeth Nesbitt role, watching all of this, because she doesn't understand what's going on either. She's like, why is this little girl tied up? What's going on with this? And then all these guys come over and start hassling him. And then next thing you know, he's standing up and going over and, you know. Taking that woman out of there, throwing shit out of the the uh, the, the the apartment on the third floor. I'm just like, okay, yeah, this is pretty cool. You know, you have the, the other great thing about to do Milos. this to me. I love that yes. line. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Can't be being serious. Yeah. It's so good. Um, I was gonna say the in a weird way, the great thing about Milos Forman. One of the things I noticed watching Amadeus, um, again, what Chris and I talked about was how. How do I how do I want to articulate this? People are allowed not to have the mid-Atlantic accent that so many actors sort of acquire when they do a period piece. Uh-huh. Elizabeth McGovern sounds like she is in 1981, but it works. Uh-huh. And it also makes the movie very accessible. Like there's something he, I'm gonna say that Milos Forman is an is a very unsubtle filmmaker. You're watching what he wants you to watch. You're not watching it going, huh, what's going on here? Um, I know we were talking about being frustrated by not getting certain moments within a narrative, but when you're watching a scene 
And again, this is not a criticism, but it's almost like you're watching a television show. (laughs) You're very clear on everyone's feelings, the dramatic moment that's being played out. And, and he, and while the production dresses it up, he as a director does not try to necessarily elevate or inject something with a sense of importance that is above and beyond what it just holds naturally and narratively. The things that are happening are very important and, and have meaning and moment in these people's lives, but he doesn't feel that he needs to be reserved about it or, 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 or sort of clouded in any particular way. You're seeing the emotions. In Amadeus, all you got to do at any point in that movie is look at F. Murray Abraham's face and you know what's happening in the movie. Mm. His face acting is off the charts. And the same thing here, just voices, people's, they're just, you're within a scene, you're not confused. You know what's happening and why it's happening. And I think that's what makes his movies compelling and watchable because you feel connected to them. You're like, oh yeah, you as a nine-year-old knew what the hell was going on. I, as a fairly unsophisticated 15-year-old, was watching this movie and I got it all. I'm like, yep, yep, I'm right with you. And that was not every movie. When I was 15 and going to the movies, I was confused more often than not. I was oh, confused yeah, yeah. by fucking everything. I was confused well, by Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm like, well, I don't understand. Was that the same guy that was the other guy that was the main? I mean, I definitely get more out of this every single time I watch it. I mean, I didn't necessarily understand everything when I was nine years old. I mean, the boobies definitely held more weight to me than a lot of the other stuff. But I mean, yeah, I knew watching this, the the tragedy of Cole House. I mean, of course. Wow. Again, his face is the F. Murray Abraham face. Yes. Well, and just to the whole idea of, and this, I believe was added the whole thing of him going to this clerk who gets sent to that clerk who gets sent to this clerk. It's very Terry Gilliam esque the way that he's just running through this bureaucracy. I mean, that is straight out of Foreman's life. This whole thing of, you know, and he was even saying like in the commentaries, just like, yeah, the humiliation that you would have and just the weird shit of like, you know, the, the, the Nazis first because his parents were killed in concentration camps. And then eventually when he's in Czechoslovakia, he's just like also getting the runaround from the communists and just all the weird rules, the arbitrariness, the humiliation that you face every single day is like, you know, what's, what's my dirt doing in this guy's hole kind of thing. And that's just his life every single day. So he just loves to skewer that kind of awfulness But then when you add the racial politics to it and you just think about where we were in, you know, the early 1900s and where we are today, it's like, I feel like, you know, this movie was made, what, 40 years ago? Oh, yeah. 42. Still as relevant today as it was now as it was in 1906. And what's cool about that little sequence, the sequence where he is trying through channels, through oh, yeah. legal channels to, to settle his claim. <laughs> and and what, what's great about that little thing where he's getting sent back and forth between the cops and the city clerk is that it those scenes right there don't feel like they're about his race. No, no. It feels like anybody would be going yeah. through the exact same thing. It's not, it's not like they look at him, look him up and down and go, get out of my office. They're literally going, they're just saying, this is not our purview. Go back to the cops. And the cops going, I'm sorry, but it's not our purview. Go back to the city clerk. And he keeps going back and forth. And it allows you, it allows any viewer of any race to go, oh, 
I know this. Uh-huh. We've all been through this before, and it makes you want to kill someone. Oh, yeah. And then it's guess what happens trip next? to the DMV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, that's what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He's really trying to follow it. And then yeah, the whole thing, too, of like, oh, well, these are volunteer firemen, so they don't actually have anybody that they report to. And you're just like. Mm, really they have no authority whatsoever over these guys okay right and then he goes to ted ross the uh the african-american lawyer oh yeah and you're like oh oh, great you know he's gonna get this guy on his side and boy that scene does not play out the way you think no no and i thought moses gunn as booker t washington was just terrific i mean he's such a great actor and just coming in and they're Ted a Ted about stuff and just the way that he's like, I'll get you swift justice and a painless execution. I'm like, oh my oh god, it's so because bad. He he knows. I mean, he's not sugarcoating anything. You are well, fucked, Cole, Cole House, for doing this. I'll yeah. try to make sure that they kill you quick. Yeah, he's the only one who actually tells him the truth because oh, when yeah. father goes in and says, I don't think you're in as bad a situation as you. As you might think, I think we can actually take this to court. And I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? People have been murdered. Right. There are bombs going off. I don't think this guy's getting probation. Oh, and I love the whole thing of younger brother having basically been radicalized. Yeah. He, he's fed up with father. This whole thing of like, that's not what the lawyer said. He said that we could do this. Like before... You know, like Sarah even right. gets herself killed. He's just like, you're you're lying to this girl. Why are you doing that? And the father's just like, hey, you know, back off kind of thing. And younger brother's just like, mm-mm. And when he joins up with Cole House, I love that. I love that scene and just how he's like, oh, I make fireworks. And everybody's laughing. And he's like, no, I can make bombs and just boom. You're like, oh, we have just gone to another level. And totally. when we see him there with the the... Uh, dark makeup on his face and stuff. And in the book, they really describe it. He basically does a minstrel show, like the burnt cork all over. And they talk about how he emphasizes his lips and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. But I love how they use his whiteness. And the other thing that was weird in the book is that father sees his brother, younger brother, sees his brother-in-law. I like that they don't have that in the movie that he puts on that hood and he's just one of the guys and then yeah. they, they use his whiteness to escape is so yeah. great for me. It's so great. Yeah. That twist is really, really oh, fun. Love it. And, 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 and it's now that I think about it. Yes. So now that's our third radical. Yeah. His younger brother he totally becomes radical. I mean, like literally textbook, I'm going to make bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, the um uh you know uh cole house's uh ultimately wife and mother of his child uh played by debbie allen uh is also radicalized i mean she leaves town she goes she chases down the 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 vice president at a whistle stop and 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 tries to approach him with her case it ends tragically but but she is launched into motion a lot a lot of people sort of launched in into motion and out of their comfortable space. Again, you could have done it with Mary Steenburgen. You could have done it a little bit more with Elizabeth McGovern. You could have done it. You you could have had everyone's little, you know, kind of trajectory into a radical future, even Mm -hmm. father in in a certain way. Um, But I guess we just didn't have the real estate to do it. 
I feel like the father character is the one character that attempts to be, I, I would, would you say like the placeholder for like, not the government, but the way things are, or at least the way we perceive things to be. Some people would like to believe maybe the sugar coated idea of it. Cause like you said, towards the end of the movie, he goes in there and he's like, yeah, I don't, you said, I don't think you're in as bad of a spot as you're in. He's like, get the fuck out of here. He's, mm-hmm. he I'm like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, you don't fuck. He's at the point where he's like, you don't fucking understand. And I can't get you to understand. Right. And like you said, Mike, the thing with, with Booker T. Washington is like, that's the moment of like, hey, dude, like you're past the point now. Like you've mm-hmm. murdered people, which I, I think the movie kind of does the Cole House character, a, not a disservice, but kind of sanitizes it a little bit by us not seeing that really happen. It's just like the firemen were murdered off screen. Right. And it's like, right. he killed those guys. Like, Oh well, yeah. No, no, that was on screen. We saw that attack. We saw but those we, people getting well, shot. Those guys were hiding outside the, uh, they call. They oh, make okay. a call. Yeah, you're right. The guys come out okay. and we see them on the ground and they're screaming at the guy. Where's uh, Kenneth McMillan? Conklin, yeah. Conklin. Right. Where's okay. Conklin? You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, no, we it see it. It's, it's bad. And it, they it, killed it. Like, you're like, oh, are they not dead? No, they're dead. Yeah. They and they've been murdering firefighters. Like, yeah, that's not a good look. <laughs> no. It, it is way worse than the book. It is. Of way course. Worse when they talk about how there's a guy across the street, the horses come out, you know, like the they're pulling out the, the steam engine. And these the guy across the street with the shotgun just starts shooting stuff he murders those horses murders the guy who is driving the horses the steam engine tips over lands on one of the guys you're just like jesus christ and yeah it's really bad and then they talk about all the bodies that they recover they even talk about in one they hit another fire station and they're like oh yeah four firemen died in here plus the lady across the street was so scared she died i was like geez man <laughs> well yeah because then they go on it's like okay now we're just going to start randomly killing more firemen until someone takes us seriously mm-hmm. right and and like i like that the end of the movie they're finally like again th- we see that moment with booker t washington and that understanding but yeah it's the james olsen character for me is supposed to i guess he's supposed to be like the stand-in for not the government but again like the way things are Because his, like, the way he treats mother and the child and, like, lack of compassion there where he's like, but, and she's like, but fucking what? And he's just like, but. It's like, god damn it. It's like, it's that idea of, like, when given the opportunity to do better, there's always going to be that person who can't take that next step. And I think that for a lot of us, that's what our perception of the government is, is like, it never goes and does it. It never does enough. And it's like, and it, but it always says that it is. And it's like, that's the father character is he's trying to signal. He's he's virtue signaling, right? Like he's like, Oh, you know, it's great and all, but that's like when given the opportunity to do something, he's like, never mind. I, I back away from the opportunity to actually affect change. He's, he's the white man who, who sort of, who sort of gets it and, and like, isn't with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
actively racist or actively, but he is passively supporting the status quo. I would have voted for Obama for a third time, like <laughs> says in Get Out. It's like yeah, that. It, That's what it, it reminded it, me of. It's like, I'm an ally. And it's like, but you're an ally quietly. Like to yeah. be an ally anymore is not to be quiet. Like, especially a, with yeah. how loud these assholes are. Like He's an armchair ally who who benefits from the status quo, who who's not going to give a full throated defense of it. And is not going to be like Kenneth McMillan and, and, you know, actively, you know, g- committing hate crimes. But he's not ready. He's the non-radical. He is not ready to cross that line. And so people leave him. His his wife leaves him. His brother-in-law leaves. And and he's left sort of alone in his mansion as 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 in the movie, as others go off to their their changed future. It's more exciting future with yeah. him watching through the well, window. Yeah, you know, I gotta hop in the sack with Manny yeah. Patinkin. All right. <laughs> Or he could be dead on the Lusitania. <laughs> oh, again, again, we don't know that. We don't. I don't read books. I only see movies. Yeah, I mean, I was really glad that doing this episode finally motivated me to listen to the book. And by the way, I, it feels like I'm slagging on El Doctoral a lot during this, and I'm going to slag on him one more time. It's not the best idea always to have your author read the book on the oh, audible version. No. Oh, he's really? not that good of a reader on this. Yeah, he's very flat. And there's a couple chapters. I wonder if they took this from an old cassette tape because there's a couple chapters on Audible where the volume will either raise or lower significantly <laughs> to the rest of it. So it's oh, no, bad. you got to get pros. You got to get an actor. You got to get someone who knows what they're doing. You can't no. Yeah. I don't by need a to cast hear of people. Exactly. And this would have been a good cast one. I mean, it is all told from a third uh what is it? An all-seeing narrator type of guy. Third pre- he, third party omniscient. Yeah, and he occasionally will talk about things from the future like, "Oh, and then he would die in this year or whatever." Like, uh, Thaw. Like Thaw escapes from prison in the book and then he goes to camp and they talk about like basically for the rest of his life and he died pretty early type of thing and there's like little things like henry ford is a character jp morgan is a character the two of them hanging out is kind of weird like morgan is like oh there are people amongst our population that are uh, blessed and this goes back to you know the egyptians would recognize that there are always these special people and he's trying to like surround himself with special people so of all the special people he goes to he goes to fucking henry ford and i did like like Ford, just like oh yeah yeah that sounds great but not the jews and i'm just like okay good <laughs> i was about to say it could get real uh real white and blue-eyed real quick yeah so i'm glad that they kind of portrayed harry ford as a piece of shit because he was a piece of shit i'm waiting for someone to write the book like this for now where the fuck is the bonfire of the vanities for now because i want i want the character that's the trump stand-in i want the character that's the elon musk stand-in i want the aoc stand-in like i want these because that's what this is is that not like and that's what the appeal of this is this has a similar appeal to something like Forrest Gump, where you've got the story and then you've got the real world as we know it around it, but it's the things that were being deemed important by the person who's writing this book. And it's like fucking Houdini is important. Oh, yeah. 
it's hard now because so much of what is transpiring is is being tracked minute by minute right anyway it it it's sort of it's harder it doesn't leave a ton of room for interpretation and then when you do get something like that um and this is my own personal opinion but when you do get a movie like uh don't look up Thank it you. feels like it's trying to do that it's not very good i was not a fan of that movie no no i mean you get the most ham-fisted comedy quote unquote in the world yeah. through that and i i hate to be this guy but right now it feels like things are so silly that if you were to write this down in a book you'd be like yeah no i don't believe this but it's also like it's almost like the world is worse than what you could write it you know like the moment you think that somebody reaches bottom they always go worse you know the you know we all know that elon musk is a piece of shit but he just keeps wanting to prove that he's one of the biggest pieces of shit in the 21st century yeah it it there really is almost no room for satire oh right it's it's just it's just happening in front of us. Or, or yeah. does satire or does satire have to go further than it's ever gone before? Is my question. Oof. Well, yeah, like, and like I said, and get <laughs> roads. Let's get ready, baby. <laughs> we don't need roads. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the way to do it is take Bonfire of the Vanities or Ragtime, do them as a TV show now, and have right. and have the stories of now being kind of zhuzhed up and fit into this narrative in an interesting right. way yeah. and just and reflective of the times and you know what like honest to god ragtime or bonfire the vanity should be a tv show or like a or like a, a three season show it totally like, should it would well, like that's is... the only way it would ever fucking work if you wanted to adapt a narrative like this because let's not kid ourselves the fact that this movie's two and a half hours ain't enough period well, like to well, tell this yeah. story yeah. the right way this is a tv show just like bonfire was a tv show it was really weird because Dr. O wanted this to be a TV show. He was not happy with what Foreman was doing because he's like, no, my stuff deserves a lot more time and space. And of course, like we had miniseries, we had North and South, we had mm-hmm. the Winds of War, we had so many miniseries at this time. Showroom was on the air at Roots this time. Roots was coming up, right? Roots, of yep. course, Roots has been out. I think that was 76 or something. Okay. And, and it's just like, this would have been great for that, but at the same time, I think it would have been too radical for what they were talking about. And we've told this story before. There was a, a movie with uh, Ray Milland and Farley Granger, and I can't remember. It was Joan Collins was Elizabeth Nesbitt, and so or Evelyn Nesbitt. So we had we had already tread some of these things in movies before with uh, the girl on the red velvet swing. I think it was called. You know, because again, these are real characters, and people are seeing the drama. That movie, by the way, do not track it down. It's not very good at all. Not very dramatic. And this movie definitely plays up all that drama. But then to your guys' point from earlier, we just kind of lose it after a while. It's like this thread goes away. This thread goes away. I think having, because they stick that thaw stuff of him escaping somewhere in the middle of the book. It's just kind of an aside. But to have it where Foreman puts it, and I know he's not escaping, he's let out of prison, to have that at the end, to be like, this guy murdered a man in cold blood in front of a room full of 200 people, but he's just getting away scot-free, coming out of Matawan. I'm like, wow. And after we had just seen 10 minutes before Henry Rollins being murdered. 
Yeah. And that's the juxtaposition, right? And that's yeah. the that's Howard the Rollins, so. that's the foremanism, right? I mean, that's oh, what yeah. foreman likes to do is juxtapose. And I mean, ha- it's having those two things essentially back to back, I think, is one of the smarter things he does. Because, yeah, like you said, it's that comment on look at this guy. Yeah. Who killed some firemen, but yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. And then the other guy who shot the guy in the middle of the room and got away with it. Like, uh, look, oh, how fair justice is. Justice mm-hmm. truly is blind, everyone. And stupid. Richard, final thoughts on Ragtime. I think Ragtime is absolutely worth watching if you have never seen it. I believe that it it is such a rich production, so well acted, um, and 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 it really it really gives the viewer something every moment to engage with visually, emotionally, musically. Um, it's very haunting. And, and it, it does pack emotion. And if, if nothing else, if you're, if you're a person who does not know Howard Rollins Jr., then, then definitely watch Ragtime and, and see what could have been. And also watch a soldier story. He really, he's amazing in a soldier story, but the guy who plays the sergeant in that is also, what was his name? It wasn't Adolf Menju. That's a totally different guy, but, um, he is freaking fantastic as well. But yeah, poor Howard Rollins. I, I mean, you probably remember as well as I do the whole thing of like, oh my God, he's a cocaine addict, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, some Adolf Caesar is the name of the guy I'm thinking of. But, you know, there were so many people that were on cocaine in the 1980s. It was just a matter of he got caught and he probably got railroaded because the guy was a black guy. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Oh yeah. Good stuff. So, uh, Mike, put a put a bow on it. Final thoughts on Rag Ragtime. Very unusual film for Milos film Milos Foreman at this time in his career. You know, you guys talked about Cuckoo's Nest, I believe, or you've watched Cuckoo's Nest yep. now, Chris. Yep, so yep, yep. We did a Patreon got, special. Yeah. On. So we got Cuckoo's Nest coming out in '75, Hair coming out in '79, which I always felt was about ten years too late. Um. But Ragtime, such a different direction for him because he has been, even with hair being set in the Vietnam wartime, is very much a contemporary story. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, timeless story, but set in contemporary times. This was that first entree into Milos Foreman as this historical director. Yeah. Sometimes he did a great, like Amadeus. Sometimes we ended up with things like Goya's Ghosts and Valmont. But what a weird turn for his career to make ragtime, to be able to get some of those messages through, to do, I would say, a pretty fair adaptation of Doctorow's book. Is it perfect? No. But is it a masterpiece? I would say it still is. And yeah, it just, it holds up for me. Like I said, I get more out of it when I see it. It's one of those movies I'd be very curious to, to revisit it in another 10 years. Cause I think that's what I'm doing now is about once every 10 years with this film and it, it really does it for me. Yeah. I think for me, you know, this is a movie that like you've mentioned, it will benefit from some time in the oven with me, as they would say, like in enjoying the kind of moment to, to sit and think about it and maybe revisit it and then, you know, leave it on the shelf and come back to it in a while. Again, it's, it's prescient in ways that bonfire the vanities is. And again, I think the people that were writing those books got it in ways that a lot of authors don't. There's, I mean, again, we talked about fear and loathing in Las Vegas earlier this year, and we were saying the same thing. 
Andy Roush and I were saying the same thing there that we've kind of been saying here, which is, man, it kind of sucks that this is as prescient as it is, given when this is taking place. <laughs> like, yeah. we're still we're living in the fucking same times, folks. And it sucks. But at the same time, progress is measured in inches, not in miles, unfortunately. So I enjoyed this movie. Uh, but again, I, I think like a lot of things, this is a movie that it's going to take some time to kind of lay the roots and, and kind of take hold because it's it's a lot to take in every time you watch it. It's never not a lot. And I think that's uh, that's the point. That's what Foreman wanted. So uh, and weird aside, as if uh, as if it all doesn't come back to a Mike White mentioned. So, Mike White, you mentioned uh, Look Up, right? That that weird Netflix movie. That was um, Richard, actually. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Robert Joy was in that movie as well. Oh boy! No kidding, was <laughs> no he? Sh- oh my! No shit! God. All right, yeah. isn't that there weird? Ain't that? Yeah. Ain't that something? So, so yeah. So that's that's Mike White uh, May, everybody. So uh, on that note, we'll uh, we'll take a break and we'll play a preview for next month. United by family. Torn by injustice. Inspired by a dream. Al norte. Al norte. They traveled thousands of miles to get to a new land. But their journey was just beginning. More than a decade after its original theatrical release, the dream still lives in a land called El Norte. That's right. Next month, we're going to be doing um, really far outside of my comfort zone. We're going to be talking about Spanish language films. Mm. Yeah, which is... No hablo? I mean, pequeño, a little. I guess that's what, yeah. Pequeño, I, mean, I, I think that means hot. No, pequeño is small. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I thought I did think at one point that fumar meant mushrooms when I was in high school. I don't know why. That was the one answer, the one wrong answer on an exam that stands out in my mind. I was like, fumar is mushrooms, right? Well, it's like fungi, right? <laughs> yeah, it's close. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about El Norte from 1983, and I'm going to be joined by On Segal's uh, Trevor Gumble. So. He hasn't been on the culture cast in a while, so it'll be good to talk about Spanish language movies. He's an expert, just like I am. That's a fucking lie. Until then, <laughs> until then, where can people find you, Richard Haddam, who totally doesn't have an answer here that would not be the same one, say, a month and a half ago? I'm on the picket line. So you can find me out in front of Disney or Warner Brothers or Universal. Those are the ones closest to my house. But I have <laughs> I have made the trek out to Netflix to carry a sign in, in front of their building for a little while because I did uh, work around there. 
Uh, so yeah, I am on strike with the Writers Guild. We're uh, waiting for the studios to engage us uh, seriously and um, uh, begin considering uh, paying us a living wage, which is what we're asking for. And right now, the directors are asking for the same thing and actors are asking for the same thing. And in about a month, you might see all of us on the picket line. Someday podcasters will get paid a, a living wage. We're <laughs> pretty far down on the fucking totem pole. I get it. We're the ones We're the ones who are looking up and going, man, they get paid? <laughs> Guys get paid for this shit? <laughs> Was that yeah. we're the Millers, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you guys are getting paid for this? <laughs> what about you, Mike? Where can people find you and your collected body of work? Oh, uh, soy, uh, escribo. No, no, that's I write. Uh, yeah, I can't. You can find all my stuff. Escuchen, uh, El Projection Butho to, uh, at weirdingwaymedia.como. That's all you need to know. El Blanco Whito. See, si, Miguel Blanco, por favor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so this would be the moment where i would say the old well patreon this and and that so so there's a there's a th there was a moment last week where uh and mike knows what i'm talking about i realized that my patreon's not great and so i went in and i changed my patreon so if you're interested in Ooh. supporting the culture cast in a substantive financial way now over at patreon.com slash culture cast there are three tiers you can get involved in there's the completionist tier the culture cast completion is where you get access to all of the bonus episodes, which we do once a month and you'll never find them anywhere other than there. So if you want to hear what we thought about cuckoo's nest, uh, that's where you would find it is over on Patreon for $5 a month for $20 a month. You could be the double feature guru program, two movies a year, which, uh, you know, it's $10 a movie, which for most people, that's like a cup of coffee twice. So, yeah, that's what you could do. Or if you really want to get freaky and crazy, uh, there are three spots left on the director's chair where you get $250 a month, program an entire month of, of movies, which is if that's something you're into, you could do that. And uh, some people are into it. This year, we're going to be talking about, in August, we're doing Mickey Rourke movies. Hmm. So there you go. That was programmed by a Patreon supporter. So that's where you can go to find all that patreon.com slash culture cast. So this is me making up for the 150 times I never did this or 250 times or 350 or whatever it is at this point, because Patreon is not something I gave a shit about until, uh, you know, I, I did. So there you go, folks. That's where you can find that. As for everything else, Mike said it best. Weirdingwaymedia.com is where you can find his show, the projection booth, this show, the show that the three of us do together, which is Rankin on Bass, where we talk about Rankin and Bass Christmas specials from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and almost 2000s. As for the three of us, that's where you can find us. This show, you can find that there. Big thanks to Mike for programming the month and for sticking around for every episode. I enjoyed it as always, and I hope you did as well. I definitely did. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris. And thanks so much for Mike White, whatever month starts with M. Very much appreciated. And I, I always love talking movies with you. So I always look forward to this. Likewise. And Richard, thank you so much for, for joining us on the first episode of the Culture Cast that we did together. I'm so happy I could be here. He's got food and we don't. On that note, we'll catch you on the next episode.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.